Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and it's Wednesday, January 19th, 2011, and welcome to the Future of Education. Our special guest tonight is Yong Zhao. Yong, thanks so much for coming on the show again. Oh, thank you. Really fun to have you here. I tried to put both books up. I think that uh, Asian Education is your most recent, right? Yes, it's a handbook for Asian Education that includes uh, a lot of chapters on the various what I call uh, different cultural civilizations, uh, including India, the Islamic, and Confucian, and uh, Japanese. So, so it's quite interesting. Well, we'll give you a chance to talk about that tonight. Mm -hmm. Future of Education is sponsored by Illuminate, which is now going to become Blackboard Collaborate. And my employer and the project I work on is called Learn Central. It's a social network for educators with Illuminate baked in. It is free. We hope you'll come and take advantage of it. Coming up on our interview series on Thursday, tomorrow, Barnett Berry is going to talk about his new uh, anthology, Teaching 2030. On Monday, we have Karen Cater scheduled to talk about the head tech plan. On Tuesday, Gary Steger, whom I'm sure will give quite a rebuttal to the EdTech plan. Then uh, Michael Horn will revisit uh, Disrupting Class. After that, David Wiley, Karen Hume, lots of fun. Well, uh, new to the list is John Seeley Brown on February 22nd on his new book, The New Culture of Learning. Uh, Steve Wheeler on Web 2.0 Learning on February 23rd. And new to the list as well is Mitch Resnick from MIT Media Lab there on March 10th. But hopefully something of value to you uh, interested in coming and joining us for one of one or more of those. If you've missed a session, we've got all of them recorded. You can go to futureofeducation.com. On the recording page, you can see the links to the individual MP3 files and the podcast, as well as the full Illuminate recordings. Last night, we talked to Will Richardson. Uh, last week, Ira David Sokol. In December, Alfie Cohn, Deborah Meyer. Lots of fun people. Hopefully, again, there's something there that will appeal to you. If this is your first time in Illuminate, we sure are glad that you're giving this experience. We hope you'll have a good time. The uh, first thing I'm going to encourage you to do is to go up to View Layouts and switch to the Wide Layout. It makes it a lot easier to see the chat. And so that's View Layouts Wide Layout. At the bottom of the participant window, you'll see a clapping hand, smiley face, confused look, or a thumbs down. Those are ways of kind of giving feedback during the session. We will move to Q&A <coughs> in the second half. And if you want to ask a question by microphone, you can click on that hand with the green up arrow. That's your way of raising your hand, and we'll give you the mic. Uh, we'll encourage you to wait until the Q&A session to do that. Um, I'm now going to give you permissions to modify the whiteboard. And so you're looking for the wand with the red star at the end. And that's to the left of the map. And you click on that wand, and then you click on the map, and it lets us know where you're participating from. And it helps to do a shout out in the chat as well. Bills in Manila. Otherwise, a relatively North America-centric uh, crowd tonight. Isn't that interesting? We're sure glad to have you with us wherever you're participating from. And if you're listening to the recording, thanks so much for taking the time to do so. So, Yong, it was about a year ago that you and I talked. And I uh, listened to the recording of that and, and actually looked at the book again. And I'm so appreciative of uh, the, the message and the detail um, 
in catching up or leading the way. How are we doing? What's what's happened in the last year? Are we doing better, worse? What kinds of thoughts are you having? Well, I think actually uh, the education scene from a federal level, national level, is getting worse. I mean, you look at uh, since we talk about the race to the top, it's pushing more about the so-called accountability, more testing, you know, a lot more money spent on those things. And I've been studying a lot of the uh, risk top applications. I mean, what I have now turned this thing called uh, data as a new god for American education. And uh, but data, you know, I'm not opposed to data, but this data is not really false data. It's a false god we're trying to to do now with uh, Arnie Duncan holding a billions of dollars, uh, which actually we don't have. We borrow those money, our children's money, to ruin their future. That's what I call it. It's uh, it's getting very, very bad in that sense. And the Common Core standards has been pushing down to everybody. There's come uh, two consortia trying to develop some common assessments. Uh, I think the devil's in the details a lot of us, but the, the general move, uh, I think, is uh, towards more, uh, as I wrote in the book, towards more kind of dictatorial and more uh, tyrannical uh, argument. I mean, I just finished an article writing for Andy Hagriff's actually Journal of uh, Educational Change, talking about how uh, uh, globally we're moving education, you know, curriculum homogenization, curriculum standardization. We impose a lot more arrogant tyranny on our children's future. So uh, I, I think uh, it's not doing very well. And I'm very happy to report, however, our many general, genuine grassroots movement to rebel against this, as you probably are aware that in the UK in the summer, I think at least a quarter of their schools boycotted a national test in, the, in England and uh, made it impossible for them to compile so-called, you know, the national league table. And I saw some news in the U.S. talking about uh, some schools trying to boycott national tests as well. I think uh, uh, if you look at the, the PDK Gallup poll, a lot of people are get less, um, much more disenfranchised uh, with uh, the no child behind. The enthusiasm endorsing the so-called outside accountability is actually uh, dissipating uh, based on those uh, the surveys. So I think uh, it's hopeful that uh, people are beginning to realize the potential uh, uh, damages and uh, not potential damage, actually realize damages and trying to move. But I don't see at the policy level that's happening. So that's really interesting. It, both one and the same time, um, both positives and negatives. Uh, I did not know about that summer boycott in the UK, and I would love if somebody has a reference mm -hmm. to that to put it in the chat because I'd like to look it up. Uh, just take a quick look at search for the uh, UK primary school boycotting. It's about in last August. That sounds a lot like the John Taylor Gatto Bartleby project. I don't know if anybody's familiar with that, but we're encouraging students to write on the top of tests, I would prefer not to take this test and then just not taking it. So mm -hmm. uh, it, in this same past year, we've had Education Nation and we've had Waiting for Superman. H how have you perceived those particular activities? Well, uh, you know, actually two uh, interesting videos came out. I don't know if anyone has uh, seen the other one. It's called Race to Nowhere. Yes, we had the director on the show, uh, Vicky Abelis. We had a Vicky on the, on the show? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think uh, uh, this is it's a good thing in the sense that I, I like this kind of, you know, uh, uh, attention to educational issues. Uh, I just hope there will be more educators actually have been uh, 
on the show and talking about this because you look at uh, the uh, waiting for Superman and other things. I think uh, a lot of this are probably more ideologically driven uh, than educationally driven in that sense. You know, when I look at them, they have a very, very clear message uh, to do. And right now, I think in the U.S., a lot of the educational agenda is being hijacked by special interest groups about what they specifically want to promote, which may or may not have much to do with uh, uh, children. And uh, I don't know if you're aware of the University of Colorado founded a national center on educational policy. They're trying to debunk uh, the so-called think tank reports, all you know, well, movies like that uh, about this. But of course, they have been charged have been too uh, on the other side as well. So, but overall, I think in the U.S. we, we need a lot, kind of a, a lot of courageous uh, leaders uh, and also people like you to bring a lot of different views and opinions to others because definitely the mainstream media is still dominated by what I call the other side, the other perspective that our children, our schools, our, uh, I mean, our teachers need to be have reduced autonomy instead of more autonomy, not recognizing that in the future, our children actually have to learn how to what we call invent jobs and you know, not find jobs. I, I'm stealing a line from the social network, by the way, is that our children have to grow up to become themselves. Children are uh, independent thinkers, I mean, they're growing to be learners. They have to learn to take ownership of their own learning, and but all now we're depriving them of the opportunities to do so. So it's fun to have uh, Iris Sokol in the audience, and and then we get to Q and A. hopefully he'll speak up. Um, and and I think his work is, uh, if you're not familiar with it, is is very interesting in the light of this because looking at business interests and the protection of existing systems not being a new story necessarily. Um, in this past mm -hmm. year, you've also sh changed jobs. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Just recently. So I noticed that your Twitter name is going to be problematic. <laughs> well, I'm going to try to realize, that's what I call legacy, right? You know, think about educational reform is very much like that. So you have a legacy, do you want to change it or not change it? You have to make a good decision about it. So I don't know if I'm going to change it or not. I noticed that there was an article about government officials who actually, you know, in their Twitter names had their title. <clears throat> Uh, and so mm -hmm. they would actually completely switch and just um, hand that one over to someone new. I'll be curious to see what you decide. Um, uh -huh. I, uh, I went back through your blogs over the last several months, and obviously you talked about Education Nation, and you talk about the PISA scores. Um, but, uh, mm -hmm. And I want to kind of talk about maybe how your thoughts have refined over the past year, but there are three particular news items that I thought we could start with a focus on. The first to me is having President uh, Hu Jintao visiting right now. Mm -hmm. um, and it feels different to me, and I, and I want to explore this just briefly with you. If, as you talked about in our last interview, fear is behind a lot of the, um, the reaction, the move towards standardization, I actually have uh, in, an interesting feeling about his being here and seeing our country uh, in the light of China right now and feeling a little bit like we're failing. Uh, and feeling that fear myself, feeling that we failed financially, that we're now in a position where we have less power and authority and less moral authority. Um, is there is there something going on there, and am I am I just experiencing the same thing that others do that maybe leads to a major reaction? Uh, actually, it does. I mean, I think uh, 
the the U.S. media, you know, I think U.S. is a crisis-driven country. It's it's very interesting. We uh, I think this must be uh, the 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 good trait of American culture. We are always worried about uh, the future, and uh, you know, like I think what Mark Twain was talking about. You know, when you look at the sunset, look, you think it's beautiful. When I look at it, I think it's going down. You know, it's endings. I, I, not exact quote. Someone can correct me on that. But the, the general idea is that. I think uh, uh, both political parties too. You know, they're trying to you know to talk about how bad you are, so I can replace you, do better. <laughs> so that, that's how. It, and uh, uh, the Chinese media, culturally speaking, is dominated by the government. It's always going to praise what what they have. So if, when you read the media stories about China, you always think it's exaggeration to the good side. If you read that in the U.S., you always think about the exaggeration to the bad side. But if you don't know, you you take the same view like the Chinese think. You know. The media may take a, a, a very rosy view of everything, so they will subtract the already gloomy pictures the U.S. media painted. Therefore, I think there's a lot of under, uh, uh, misperception of the U.S. is like U.S. is going to die tomorrow, something like that. It's uh, it, it, so I think that definitely coming down here. Uh, I don't think the, the the president of China necessarily knows understands more than some other people feed him the news story. So I think there is a general sense that the U.S. somehow is dying, but I was actually looking at some data yesterday uh, from BBC that compiled from various sources. It, it doesn't show the U.S. in, in terms of GDP. Uh, I mean, it's uh, in terms of the growth. If you look at last 30 years, uh, China had the best, had the same kind of growth rate, actually, because, but the percentage, of course, is different. But look at the, the in terms of uh, uh, dollars, uh, trillions of dollars is different. The U.S. only, the big hiccup for the U.S. is 2008. I mean, 2007, when we had uh, this uh, Crisis, and uh, that was probably, I would say, as a discipline, Bernie Madoff. And so, and, but I think overall, right now, yes, you're right. I think uh, there is this general perception outside the U.S. saying the U.S. is declining, declining fast, and uh, we are like to talk about the same story. I think if you look at data, I would say other countries are rising, but the U.S. is not necessarily as declining as we think about it. You know. And uh, so uh, we need to put a much more comprehensive picture together. I think what I recognized in myself was difficulty in separating out a concern about the financial decisions that have been made in the last 10 or 15 years in the U.S. and the educational story and how easily those two could become mm -hmm. confused, that our financial mess doesn't necessarily mean that our ways of thinking about education are a mess. Uh, actually, you are so absolutely right, Steve. I was going to comment on that. And I said, you know, uh, China theoretically has been doing uh, this kind of educational philosophy for a long time. It hasn't changed a lot. And uh, nobody paid attention to it until it suddenly grew into this huge, you know, economy. And people say, oh, China is taking over. Just merely 20 or 30 years ago, we were so critical of China, of uh, not being able to, uh, you know, it's poorest country. Suddenly, I think, well, I think China is the wealthiest country. By the way, China's GDP is only like one-third of the U.S. GDP, but if you did that, maybe divided by a per capita, it's still not anywhere near. And then we attribute China's growth to education, to its educational success. It's just a, a misperception, and China's education benefit from its economic development, but has not really been the uh, driving force for uh, China's education and economic boom. Uh, I was also looking at uh, you know, uh, the, the other confusion about how education and economy is often 
so closely uh, intertwined, uh, I think it's a misperception. I remember a few years ago, maybe a decade ago, when Ireland was booming, was booming fast at that time. And people think Ireland has some great education system. And then when they're saying that's not necessarily true because it's great over there. But now in the recent thing, the collapse in Ireland, do we attribute to Ireland is suddenly doing bad in education? I think we really need to be very careful separating those things. Education is a much longer term business and the economy can flip, can change, you know, uh, on a cyclical basis. So let's talk, if we could, about the PISA test results. <coughs> Mm-hmm. Do you have a question or you want just me some general Well, I, I, I guess I'm just opening the door to you making some comments about it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think everybody is aware of the, the China's stellar performance. Uh, uh, students from Shanghai uh, rank number one out of PISA, and uh, people on this side, I mean, the U.S. have been, like Chester Finney has been calling it the Sputnik moment for the U.S., referring back to the 1957 uh, Soviet Union launch of the uh, the, I think the, the satellite. And um, I wrote some comments about that. Basically, uh, this is what I view it, is that if an education system views test scores in a few subjects as the ultimate goal, then you select the students who can do well in that system. Then the parents decide to put all the resources behind to go after those test scores. Then the teachers are actually selected uh, to do that. Those teachers who can produce better scores are rewarded, and the schools are doing the same thing. So in essence, you have a system putting all resources and all the time, all the efforts in trying to produce those test scores, and uh, they can. And I think the U.S. can do the same. However, I, I'm always looking at uh, the, the, what I call the costs. That's why in this book, uh, in my catching up, I said the cost of high test scores. And recently, Steve, you were asking about some new, new insights. I've been actually trying to do some study about the side effects of educational practices. In like medicine, if you take medicine, you got to have some side effects. The water side effects, that is not necessarily unintended consequences. Sometimes the consequence can be too overwhelming. So I think uh, the side effects of China trying to uh, get in this PISA score is actually detrimental. It's what they are trying to shake up, trying to go, uh, get rid of. Uh, that's why the PISA uh, uh, standard performance did not get uh, a lot of media attention in China at all. Uh, and uh, so I actually joined some kind of discussion about it you know, on China Radio International. But overall, uh, nobody was really impressed. Nobody was surprised. It's just we, we actually I would have expected. Uh, so the, the, the lesson for us to think about is that is the test scores we're going after. I mean, do we build an education system to produce the test scores? And do the test scores truly measure what matters in the future, and uh, and also what matters for a few people, does it matter for everybody? So uh, when I look at this, I look at the side effects. When you take Tylenol, you look at, okay, what's, what's, what could be the side effects? I think that's the same thing. So I, d I, did rem I did notice that you mentioned that there was little media coverage in China about the test results. So what I think I hear you saying is that that, uh, that may be reflective that in China they're still trying to figure out how to create an education system that would produce more innovation and that this is not necessarily to them the thing they want to focus on? It, it's both. In, in initially, uh, people were not uh, paying attention to the story. I did not have big media play at all. 
And then there was some discussion. I got asked to write something uh, for some Chinese media, but uh, it's really about um, how to help the Chinese not to get big-headed about this news. Because, you know, it's the Internet age. Even if you did not have major media, but the bloggers write about it. So there was some kind of debate about it as well. So what does this mean? Uh, but it's not nearly as much as in the U.S. Okay, so let's talk about Professor Chua at Yale. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite topic. So I don't want to oversimplify. Uh, and if someone would like to put in the chat, I should have gotten the URL to the Wall Street Journal article. But uh, her last name is C-H-U-A. And it's an article, an opinion piece she wrote about being, uh, quote, a Chinese mom, unquote. Um, so I, didn't, I don't want to oversimplify. but. Um, it, it, that article to me uh, felt like abuse, and it was hard for me to see it uh, in the in the context of sort of the individualism that we expect here in the United States. But does it play better in a culture and a society where the society is more important than the individual? Is that an oversimplification, or would that article get a similar response in China that it got here? Uh, yeah, actually, right now, in the sense that uh, the, the uh, I've read um, quite a lot of discussion in China. I've been I've, again invited to join some discussions in China, and they've got out several reporters talking to me about this. It's uh, I think the the overall play is that um, people in general uh, do not like what uh, she described. I think that's, that's actually, the, the, there's some media report in China, some bloggers uh, or comment online said that uh, this is precisely China has had a, a authoritarian system for so long because, you know, parents and teach kids to comply with social demands and then you produce people who are going to perpetuate that, that, that situation. So uh, uh, it may have philosophically. I think it works for always for the governing, uh, you know, the existing governance uh, government uh, to teach this way. So in a sense, that's why something that's you know, very Confucian. Uh, it forces obedience and uh, compliance. But even in China now, I think a lot of people recognize that's not the way to go. But you know, as I commented on this one, even with. Uh, uh, you know, calling children garbage. Those are actually even China is not very acceptable. It's, it's considered uh, you know abuse and psychological damage. It's still not very uh, played out well. So overall, I, I think uh, I I don't really know why she did write that. So I, I thought she was really joking. I think she was retracting some of her comments. You know, she was changing itself, calling some memoir about this, and uh, I definitely. Uh, it is uh, causing some uh, stirring of some debate about this, you know, the role of the child and the, I mean, the also the, the government would relate it. So when I look at that, I, I look at, uh, it's no different than the government imposing a lot of what needs, you know, on their children. So to me, her way of parenting, you know, I think it's arrogant parent, the same as the arrogant government to impose, to think we know the best and to view children as all possible to, make them, them into whatever you like. But children have interests, have talents, have strengths, have weaknesses, have different conditions. I think in all of this is somehow ignoring the child. 
So possibly we can write some blog. So where is the child? If you look at that, no child behind, look at the immature about how do we have any respect for anything? So even in China now, it's changing a lot. I was in Shanghai in September, and I can remember watching the children. And the, the current story at that time, and maybe it's larger than just September, but the story that I was hearing in September was sort of the little emperor syndrome that the Chinese mm -hmm. parents weren't controlling their children at all and giving them everything. So I, would, I guess I was a little surprised because it, um, that wasn't the impression I had gotten, but I, that may have been a very limited experience in Shanghai. Well, actually, you're seeing uh, two sides. Both are actually good observations because uh, uh, as I was talking about, you know, the, the, the Chinese parents in many cases would sacrifice anything for children's uh, test scores or so-called academic achievement. So they would uh, uh, do a lot of other things, treating the kids like a little emperor. But when it comes to academic studies, things that's defined by society or, you know, Chinese society or, or government as desirable, they would do anything to force them to do that. Interesting. Do, do you see what I mean? I do. And yeah. I, go you ahead. Know, so, so they, yeah, go no, ahead. No, please. Oh, I was just saying that that's a very interesting, uh, uh, you know, looks like uh, paradoxical, but it, it is true. So the Chinese, so that's why they sacrifice independence, social skills, uh, any of those things, it's sometimes even integrity, but just fall to comply with the social requirements. It's, it's, uh, it's, I was talking to a writer from Hong Kong. She's actually from the U.S. and uh, she used to write for Financial Times about creativity. I said, if you look at creativity in China, the most creative technology I've ever seen is cheating technology for testing. It's every year they have some new ways of how to cheat the system. You know, it's wireless. It's great technology coming up. Innovations in cheating. Well, I, I had a very kind of negative reaction to our article, and that was a little bit of a clue to me, uh, as often is the case, that there was something deeper going on within me. And as I reread the article, I, I realized I actually kind of have two competing views. There were parts of me mm -hmm. that appreciated what she was doing, and parts of me that were repulsed by it. You know, the, the idea that a child oftentimes doesn't know their own capabilities and you have to kind of push mm -hmm. them in that direction. But then also feeling like um, screaming and yelling and the garbage comments were, were mm -hmm. uncomfortable for me. Is there maybe a deeper, does that story maybe reflect the deeper divisions that we have about human motivation and how you help people accomplish things? Well, I think all human beings, you know, I, I think uh, we all like to be in control. We like to... Uh, understand things are going well. That's kind of explain a lot of the current, uh, you know, interest and fascination with test scores. Uh, it's uh, I think I explained well by Stephen Jay Gould in the Mismeasure of Man is that we are looking for quick and simple feedback about the situation. And so, but education, the growth of a child is a long process. So we are always thinking about, you know, it's another Chinese way of preparing them for the future. So we are always trying to understand, are we successfully preparing them for the future? So we'll sacrifice their present, and then we become compulsive. I think in the sense that we want to prescribe things for our children to make sure that we seem to be in control. Uh, and I actually, as even as an educator, I, I have to resist that temptation to say, is my child doing well every day? 
So we're looking for those indicators. I think the more educated we are, the more we steal our children's childhood because we, in essence, try to prescribe everything uh, without actually knowing exactly how that's going to happen. So I have really come to, to think about education is a very long-term process, growth as well. And uh, the best thing we can give if we learn from any great, I know, kind of people like uh, Albert Einstein, you talk about John Dewey and others. I mean, uh, people may have different views of these people, but however, in general, I think uh, they tend to say, okay, give children more opportunities, stimulate imagination, and arouse their internal motivation uh, is much more important than trying to prescribe a path and force them to climb the ladder we have given them. Uh, so that's what how I, I would re regard this. I think for her, uh, uh, for Amy Chua, the professor, uh, she is basically, I think uh, someone was already brought, brought about uh, David Brooks' comment about, uh, she's basically, uh, as I wrote as well, externalize that anxiety to social, uh, you know, definitions, you know, playing in the Carnegie Hall, doing the math, doing music. She's basically asking schools to judge if a child is doing well. If you get an A, you're doing well. If not, you're not doing well for your future. So I think that's more for an outsourcing of parental responsibility. So I'm really intrigued by what lessons that we might take from this when we think about change. In the book you wrote that you hoped that that your book would be a part of a conversation that would lead to change. If, the, if a lot of the current policy ideas are driven by a fear and control, how do we help make a difference? Have you felt like you found ways through the book to make a difference? I think so. I think in a sense, that's why I also started blogging and started talking to you. I, I feel like the book has been read by quite a lot of people. I'm you know, getting emails and getting feedback. And also, uh, because of this, I've got to talk to a lot of uh, uh, educators and sometimes not necessarily you know, in the business sector as well. I think uh, a lot of people were surprised by how uh, education can be more broadly defined than the government prescribes. And a lot of them said, you know, you got me thinking. And uh, basically, as I said in the book, it's about, uh, uh, I mean, a good a test scores, the best way to measure what we have for the future. So that's really, I think, I think to make a change, all of us needs to be, like I said, we'll be better educated about, I think, the outside world, uh, the future. I think your audience here apparently is perhaps a, a, a very special group. I wish uh, you know, everybody, uh, all teachers, educators, are as uh, uh, interested, uh, you know, um, as active as your audience in terms of thinking and reading and reaching out. And we also need to take action. So that's why I, was, I admire a lot of the people in England who did that. Uh, uh, so the, the other thing I think is to do is we perhaps have to do um, do a lot more uh, outreach. I think teachers over the past uh, you know, several decades, uh, we have been fed, and I have a lot of college of education to blame, with very trivial teaching skills, uh, teaching techniques. Uh, they're useful, they're powerful in dispensing knowledge or cultivating certain reading skills or literacy skills or any skills. They're very useful and powerful, Therefore, and they're sometimes evidence-based or best practices. But one thing I think we haven't done is to instill a much stronger sense of being a social agent, is that we, as we all call public intellectuals, and I think uh, uh, this is 
interesting. But in my village, when I was growing, we had uh, we didn't even have a teacher. I think uh, we had to go to another village for a teacher. But that teacher is very well respected. Not you know because she's just simply a teacher. She or he was viewed as a public intellectual who brains who is more enlightened than others. So I don't know if in our schools our teachers uh, uh, either can be like that or would like to do that. To you know, bring more voice out, you know, to to I think to voice the reason, uh, just to say why we need to do certain things. I think a lot of times uh, we have been more reactive instead of trying to be proactive to project a different vision. So I've been doing a dangerous thing lately. I've been reading a lot of Noam Chomsky, and one of the things I really <laughs> like about some of what he's written is he said, you know, there's a problem when you teach democracy, but you don't actually uh, enacted in, in an educational setting. That they, they have to do uh-huh. by being taught democ- about democracy, but not by actually living it. So I'm interested, in our last interview, we talked a lot about local control and local movements, or at least we, we did together. Uh-huh. I, I may have, have led yeah. that, but, uh, or pushed us in that direction. But um, it, uh, you made a reference in one of your blog posts to mass localism. Can you describe that yeah. to me and tell me if you've been seeing that happen in, in positive ways that we could emulate in uh, some way? Well, that term actually was quite used a lot in England. There's a group called Innovation Unit and another group. They've been trying to so how do how they can use local, you know, discover local solutions, but being supported by national efforts. They've been trying to do that uh, in, in in a grant effort to do. Um, uh, to work on really about uh, what environmental uh, actually carbon um, output control. And recently, actually, I was in England and talking with a group. They were asking me for advice on how they can use that to engender education innovations. But the overall idea is really, in essence, that local problems, local solutions, and local products are judged on a global scale. So therefore, the more unique, the more local you are, the more global you are, the global and valuable you are. So based on that, what I think the U.S. need is uh, to have tens of thousands of, um, which you know we have 16,000 school districts in them for that matter, uh, of innovation hubs, innovation possibilities to try out, and out of that, you're much more likely to produce uh, uh, creative, you know, uh, centers. That's something I think I, I, that's why I endorse a lot of those things because I think we are living in a very uncertain world with uncertain future, uh, we need people to try out different things, to come out with different ideas, and also to produce different kinds of people. So with any government uh, trying to mandate anything, or parent mandate anything, that's assuming, that's why I call them very arrogant, assuming they know what the future is. They've seen it, and then they can prepare you for that. So that's, you know, that's, that's our, but I don't think that works. So what I would like to argue is that we need to have, uh, if the federal government wants to help, any government wants to help, is to make those money, the $4 billion risk to top, available to stimulate local innovations, and use mass localism, and basically stimulate that, and to activate, to invite a lot more people to participate in this movement, to create a bigger dialogue about education uh, right now. But now I, I, I don't see that happening at all. Democracy seems to be a theme in your material, and you talk about, um, uh, we had noted last time that in the book you actually are kind of surprised that Americans are willing to give up control of what happens to their kids in schools. 
Um, and then you quoted uh, Neil Postman saying, public education does not serve a public, but it creates a public. Um, in, in the last year, mm -hmm. have you seen things that have either bolstered or um, changed your feelings about um, the experience that students have um, in education as a civic institution rather than as a, a test preparation location? Yeah, I think that, uh, I have seen some examples, but again, I was uh, I've been very delighted by the response of educators I've talked to. Uh, how they are, they tell me they have feel energized, they feel like they want to do it. Uh, I think my my comments about uh, uh, from the borrowing from Neil Postman also come from uh, the, the suddenly right now the loss of faith in American public education, which has helped build this nation, uh, build a democracy. And uh, so I was very shocked by how many Americans are willing to give this up. I think that's because of public fear, you know, they lost judgment. So what, uh, what I've seen, however, is I think I see a lot of views, grassroots, also thanks to the internet, uh, trying to uh, ask our teachers and others, I mean parents, to shoulder more of this democratic responsibility to protect, you know, our rights to education, our rights to define education, uh, not that the government run, but again, that's not happening at uh, a higher level or the media level yet, because I think uh, people, you know, actually I was listening to radio today, you know, the people, Congress talk about the, uh, the health bill, you know, repeal this, so it says it's not democratic to do this, you know, to do, but I'm thinking, why don't people, either the Republicans or Democrats, think about having federal government doing all of this to our children is the most undemocratic view. It's taking away a lot of, lot of things and uh, is pushing down a very dic dictatorial action approach to education. That, that's, that's really, I'm very shocked, but people do not make that connection. It's, uh, you know, American education, from my understanding and by comparing many systems, is definitely not perfect. As I said, it's an imperfect system people want to emulate. But it's like democracy. People, you know, I don't know who said that democracy is the worst form of government except all others. It's the same idea. I think it's, uh, I think education has the basic foundation. We need to really solve problems within a system, but do not question the foundation. Do not change the foundation of it. So if I were to combine, and I'm going to put words in in people's mouths here, and I may be wrong, but if I were to combine Ira Sokol's view of the, the role that businesses play in um, defining education at critical moments, and Chomsky's view that the media are largely controlled by big business and are not likely to present the full picture, um, are there ways to get the word out that you see that are, that are being effective where people are not only having good educational practice, but are finding a way to actually get it exposed on a broader level? I think, uh, again, it uh, has to be grassroots uh, in, in this regard. Uh, I think, I don't know, are you aware of uh, Jesse Turner's uh, initiative out of uh, Connecticut? He had this one-man one walk to Washington to protest uh, No Child Left Behind and now uh, the reauthorization of EFEA. Uh, I don't know if, if you can Google. He has a website now and uh, a Facebook that supports this work and if you are interested, you should do that. I think it counts on individuals. Uh, again, in a democracy, 
I, I would say what's powerful, what's important is every individual shoulders responsibility. Honestly, sometimes I feel very strange, you know, because I'm a new immigrant and I'm talking about all of these things, you know. Uh, thank God we're not in the, in the J. Edgar Hoover time. I would have been deported probably if I did that. It's, uh, so, uh, but, but I would think we need a lot more people talking about this. The big businesses definitely, I think, you're right, it plays a major role. If you look at who sponsors a lot of those reports and the findings, uh, you know, when I was looking at uh, uh, the organization Achieve, ACT, ETS, a lot of them produce a lot of reports in college readiness important and measured by our you know, SAT physics test or that test or this test. And look at the big businesses, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, Microsoft. All of them have a huge, you know, interest in this. And you look at the big, again, bigger companies. Let's say McGraw-Hill, Peterson, you know, a lot of testing companies. And so education is a big business. And there's a lot more other businesses. I haven't done really thorough studies around this, but definitely money inferences. Uh, the, uh, the money inference, I mean, we should be very careful of that. I don't know who has done a lot of analysis with this, but uh, it would be interesting to bring someone to do that. There was a, David Brooks was mentioned earlier, and there was a David Brooks column a week or two ago where he talked about um, civility. And I, I was reminded of how much we, we end up absorbing the culture around us, and sometimes it, we don't have great perspective. And and he he made the point that the I, I wish I had brought it up in advance, but the idea that um, the founding fathers saw us as flawed and imperfect, and so built systems that that allowed for balance, and that we have sort of forgotten that we're flawed, and so we end up you know believing, drinking the Kool-Aid, believing what we say. And so I imagine people in those companies, those commercial companies, believing what they say and believing that they're doing good for education, but wishing we had more of kind of a check and a balance system. That's, I think that, that's a very, very uh, good, good observation comment. I just feel right now, suddenly, we have certain individuals coming out to see uh, we know the best. Listen to me. You're going to do this. So, I mean, like in my book, I try to avoid that at all. As a business, in my whole argument, I'm only right in arguing that give the power back to the professionals, to the locals, and uh, it's, it's about autonomy. It's about a lot of those things. I think uh, right now our education system, uh, a lot of the discourse is driven by the talk of efficiency. And effectiveness is that uh, you know do we produce kids you know faster, better, more effective than others, and uh, measure again with very simplistic measures to do that, and that efficiency argument always wins somehow in the U.S. Again, because maybe we're a capitalist society, we want to become more efficient. So if you look at a lot of the standards, measurement argument has to do with the efficiency. If I move from one state to another state, why do I have to do this? If Why do all 50 states have to do this? I mean, there was some very lot of wisdom when we designed the system was designed, like you said, checks and balances to prevent us from doing this. Uh, you know, who would be, who was the most efficient, effective leader? I would say uh, Adolf Hitler was, you know, for a while, but, you know, for a very short time period. And he was very efficient building the army, he was efficient in building, you can call it, you know, an economy, a spectacular, you know, Olympics uh, games, but then quickly collapsed because uh, with a system, you leave a couple of so-called smart guys to make decisions. What if those guys are either evil or really not that smart? 
Yeah, it occurred to me the other day that the word efficiency is such a tricky word because within the context of a business, you essentially look for a single process that you make better and better, but it's a single process. So when we speak about efficiency at all in the context of education, it brings this connotation of one way of doing something, which seems so counterproductive. But I think that's, uh, Steve, that, that's what exactly, uh, as I described, is happening to education. So in order to shoot for efficiency, we have to have one measure, one national measure. In order to shoot for efficiency, we have to only have the subjects we can measure, you know, or things we can. So that's, that's basically shooting for those part of it, you know. Okay, so it's time to shift to Q&A. Um, thank you so much for being here tonight. This is, uh, again, just a great conversation for me. I feel like I'm learning so much and appreciate the chat, although I have not been able to watch the chat very closely. Uh, what I have seen, I really appreciate it. So we're going to give those of you who are here a chance to ask questions. If you've posted a question in the chat for Yong, I have not seen it, and I would ask you to post it again. Or feel free to raise your hand, which is using the hand with the green up arrow. It's the icon at the bottom of the participant window, and it's a hand with a green up arrow. Um, there have been a couple of mentions in the chat. While, while we're waiting for questions, I'll, I'll ask one myself. There have been a couple of mentions in the chat of Dan Pink, and um, the question of financial incentives actually producing worse results in education. Is that a thought that you're not in, in, in education, producing worse results for higher level thinking jobs, which for me would be education? Well, I think that's, uh, that, that's isn't that the major theme of Daniel Pink's new book, Drive? I don't know if some of you have read it. The Drive, yes. Drive is uh, money or financial incentives, other simplistic incentives uh, uh, helps uh, boost uh, the production of uh, routine type of work. But once you move to any complex, it's uh, you know, autonomy, mastery, those are more, more important than uh, the, the financial results. Uh, it is true, actually, you, you know, to any complex process, complex thinking, if you want to use those very externalized uh, rewards, and it results in perhaps four or five consequences. Only one of them will be genuine improvement. Others will be either be cheating, manipulation. You know, I can, we can say all of those things, finding ways to comply, token compliance, all of those things. I think uh, that's why in education, a lot of times it is the genuine autonomy, autonomous in our teaching will be much more important than financial incentives. If you haven't read the book, I suggest you do it. Actually, it's based on a lot of good uh, psychological research. So we did. We had Dan on the show and for Drive specifically uh, about this book? book. Although we didn't spend yeah. as much time on that on the link to education as I wish in retrospect that we had. Um, but it's not. It was in some ways he popularized a message that I've seen in business for 30 years. It's just it never becomes the predominant view, and that's kind of the the mm -hmm. dilemma. You know, in business, we know that those, you know, there have been many, many studies to show that that kind of financial compensation backfires. We've seen it played out to a huge degree in the financial collapse, you know, in, in, in Wall Street, um, where really bad decisions got made because of the financial incentives. And yet in business, that view really isn't the predominant view. Businesses are still very much run on financial incentives. So what makes, what hope do we have to see a change in education if we don't have that change in business? 
Well, I, I think education perhaps started as in the U.S. That's why I praise the traditional strength of U.S. U.S. education has started as some something that's much more local, that's much more diverse. So if we return to the reality, it's good. I think it's the business, traditional business view that Dan Pink was criticizing, or that you are criticizing, is actually uh, coming over to craft educational thinking. And I don't know if you are aware, I think I, I wrote something in this one. Uh, and um, David Berliner often talks a lot about this campus law, you know, about how if you quant your simple quantitative measures to measure to monitor any social cause, you're going to lead to corruption. I think it's very similar in, in the sense of that. And uh, I've seen a lot of this happen. But I think in education, again, we have to return back to the issue that uh, uh, we have had a good you know, sound system foundation to start with. We need to return to that. So we need to resist this uh, we are business driven. Education is a human business. Uh, so uh, I don't know how much hope we can see. The best hope I can uh, can rely on is again uh, our democratic uh, local controlled uh, uh, you know needs. So I was actually to this speaking to this uh, Wisconsin School Board Association conference. Uh, I said, you know, if you look at this, all of you were basically elected and selected and trusted by the people of Wisconsin to guard the future of their children. And are we doing that? I think we need to all ask that question. Are we doing that? If we truly believe what's happening to our children right now because of the government, we need to question, are we doing that? You know, how are we protecting our children? We are in trust with this job. That's again, I really have no other answer but to try to work with our own educators. You know, I every day I ask that question myself. So, what am I doing? You know, with my children, but then other people's children in the same way. You mentioned at the beginning of the show that um, we often see data as a false god, and I'm wondering if that relates mm -hmm. to our inability to recognize our own weaknesses. Meaning, um, a large amount of data does not necessarily mean we're good at interpreting it. Um, just like the stock market and the constant feeding of data doesn't necessarily mean we're good at knowing what that data means. Are we seeing a false perception in education that more data will actually make us wiser? <laughs> I actually uh, was taking a different interpretation when you first posed the question. I said, uh, I think uh, with numbers, I call them numbers, you call data, we can hide our, perhaps, really, uh, like you said, our anxiety about our, our own incompetence of understanding the future. So we, you know, I think we, when we have to speak to you know, people in power, we look at the numbers and say, well, look at the number. I feel like I'm in control. I know what's happening. I know what's going on I, in that sense. And then the more number we, we, we collect, the better we are. Look at that race to the top. You know, why did Arnie Duncan need a 750-point system to evaluate the report and the proposal? And if I were up for three points, you know, the more detailed you are, the less competent you are. You know, what's the difference between 50 and 48, for example? I mean, it's really silly, but he creates those items. You know, that's, I mean, for reasons you probably should do, you know, just say, uh, you know, fund this, maybe, and no. That's how we probably do it. I mean, we are much better determine those things than just trying to, you know, do those uh, the fine details. But then once we have the 750 points, we feel very competent, I guess, you know. That, uh, and now with all these other things is that uh, another problem with us is that then we reduce that number 
to four people to say, okay, you're A school or B school, then reduce that. You're good, you need improvement, no, no improvement. You know, a lot of them, you look at the cut scores. We have to cut somewhere. You know, uh, I don't know if you are aware of the New York uh, as, uh, ratings test. You know, when they change the cut score, suddenly most schools were not uh, you know, beating the AYP anymore. It's a lot of the numbers themselves. You know, I guess someone talked about this, like, uh, you know, making sausage. You know, the, the, the number actually, sausage making is very ugly. You don't want to look at it. It's when how people measure the stuff. You look at those measurement experts when they come up with items, when they make decisions, it's not necessarily that beautiful as we think simplistically in the media says, okay, this school made AYPs extend and move down. It's not going to work that way. We've only got uh, about five minutes left. If you've asked a question, again, I apologize. I haven't seen it. So I hope you'll raise your hand and let me know if you've got a question either in the chat or when you'd like to take the microphone for it. Young, when I interviewed Jennifer Scott, Jennifer Fox, um, on, yes, yeah. on strengths, uh, I think she mentioned that she had been working with you. Are you a part of the uh, projects related to the that strengths movement for students? Yeah, uh, Jennifer and I, we actually have been trying to work together uh, on some kind of a, a system that would assist students to develop uh, uh, their strengths to build on uh, to broaden their uh, you know their experiences and hasn't really happened yet. Uh, by the way, can I just put in some plug here if uh, anyone is interested? My new job in University of Oregon. What I'm doing there is actually I'm I'm building uh, what I call a virtual lab school uh, at the University of Oregon. One of the mission I have there is really to provide. Uh, courses, experience that may otherwise, otherwise not available. For example, I want to build a game design academy, a film academy within the virtual lab school, and but also make it globally accessible to have clubs from different countries to work together. It's not going to be like a course, but more like community building. That's one of the things I do at the uh, University of Oregon, so it's uh, so we called virtual lab school. So yeah, Jennifer will have ended up in work on those things to bring resources and to bring ways to I help students and parents and teachers identify strength and build on strength, and more importantly, make their strength. Uh, I mean, render them into products so uh, uh, customers and the future to prof uh, universities and employers may be aware of their strength. Yeah, I, again, I'm I'm sort of fascinated by the the dichotomy. I feel myself knowing that. Um, that I completely agree and really work with my children to find their individual strengths, but I, I don't feel like I have a really good handle on uh, you know, how you would um, provide that in a more systemic environment. Uh, so I'm, we'll, we'll be looking to see what you do there and, and hope that um, feel free to make any more commercials you would like right now. <laughs> well, another one I want to do is really try to uh, build what I call a global village concept to try to raise some money so I can build uh, at least five villages to have students from multi countries spend at least a month together to work with each other, understand each other, you know, more multi multinational uh, camps, but uh, specifically representing their own culture, but more trying to develop this global sense. Another thing, uh, I'm running a conference called uh, Students as Global Entrepreneurs in Oregon, August, with an organization uh, uh, in, from England, so we're going to have an international conference. Uh, if anyone is interested in, we can just let me know, because I really think schools have to develop uh, 
uh, entrepreneurship. By the way, I mean, when I talk about entrepreneurs, they don't have to be really good or bad. Okay, uh, it's just just somehow we have to take charge of our own life, you know, and uh, make schools and education systems as educational resources to work for the students. If they know how to command those resources, they know how to command their life. We need to give the responsibility of choice to students, and uh, then we support them. We bring that together. They have learned taking control. I think a big problem with Amy Chu and others uh, that feel recognized, the Chinese students, is because they have been deprived of the opportunity to make choices. Therefore, they automatically deny any responsibility. Uh, if anything, I would like to write a book about how the, the what they call the the the, how the the damage of love. In the name of love, we prescribe our children's future, prescribe them present, and we think in any misery they take today is for the sweet tomorrow, but that sweet tomorrow, when is that sweet tomorrow? When you're retired, when you're 75? So things like that is really, really doesn't work. Uh, someone's asking about that age group. I was thinking about the high, middle to high school students. Uh, but anyway, I, I will do a lot of those writings of the initiatives uh, on, my, on my blog. Uh, if you if any of you have any suggestions, want to be joining me in doing all this, I'll be happy to take ideas from you and work with them. This is a great group, uh, uh, by the way, Steve, and I'm sorry we did not have time to answer uh, some of the questions. Well, I really appreciate your being here. I'm going to clap for you. This is the little thing. Zong is going great. I'm sorry. We have uh, been using Zong to teach classes, uh, Mandarin Chinese, and uh, so that's now left back in Michigan State, uh, but it's still happening. Sorry, Steve, go ahead. No, I was just thanking you. So please, thank you so much for being here tonight. Really uh, great to hear from you. Um, if you want to put your blog address in the chat, I know I have I follow it on my reader, but let's make sure that people have that available to them. Um, thanks to Illuminate and Run Central for their support of me in this interview series. Tomorrow night, Burnett, uh, Barnett Berry on Teaching 2030. Um, and then next week, Karen Cater, Gary Stager, and Michael Horn. Uh, Yang, uh, fascinating evening. Really appreciate your being here. Appreciate those of you in the audience who have done such a great job participating in the chat. Really enhanced the session. Uh, really a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Take care. And, and Yang, you should feel free to drop off. You, you fulfilled your hour commitment, and we know that was a lot of time, and really appreciate it. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I will. I will Thank do you. That. Thank okay. You. Bye. Thanks everybody for coming tonight. That was really interesting. I'm going to have to to go back and look at the chat because I know I missed uh, an enormous amount of valuable feedback there. Um, really appreciate Ira and others being here and participating so actively. Um, I I um, will keep the the chat open for a couple more minutes if anybody wants to trade links or anything like that, and then I'll get the recording up uh, within the hour so that uh, the recording is up and available. Thanks for coming, everybody.